Truth Espresso, episode 67. Face it, we all would rather sleep in this morning. That's why God gave us espresso, to kickstart our zombified corpses into hyperdrive. And now, giving your mind and soul the morning shot of truth it craves. This is Truth Espresso with Daniel Minnick. Well, hey there, friends. This is your host, Daniel Minnick. Welcome to another exciting episode of Truth Espresso right here on the Christian Podcast Community, sponsored by Striving for Eternity Ministries. Here at Truth Espresso, we don't shy away from talking about difficult topics as they pertain to Christian theology. We like to cover topics of examining the world through a biblical lens, and that involves looking at the current political landscape and seeing if what is being proposed in public policy, what is being proposed under the guise of economics, fits with a biblical worldview. And so here at Truth Espresso, we are continuing a series of episodes on the topic generally of economics, uh, with some politics thrown in for spice. Of course, the uh, economics and politics are related. In fact, if you didn't know that it used to be that economics was called political economy. And so politics and economics are very interrelated. And so I would encourage you, if you haven't listened to previous episodes of Truth Espresso, where we talked about money and banking and other otherwise boring topics like that. We look at those topics in the field of economics from a biblical worldview, and we challenge conventional wisdom and put it to the test of the lens of the Bible. And in the process, we challenge Christians to start thinking about shedding modern traditions, modern ways of looking at things that even Christians have been deterred away from, understanding the world through the Word and really using the Bible and what the Bible teaches as our ultimate standard of truth, our final authority. And so, at Truth Espresso, I am in no way a shill for any political party. I am an equal opportunity offender. And so, as we continue our series on economics, we are now going to jump into a topic that actually had a lot of clout in the 1960s and 1970s, and it still continues to this day, but not with the fervor, not with the angst that it did in those prior decades. And this is the topic of overpopulation. Are there too many human beings living on planet Earth? And are there too many human beings being reproduced on planet Earth that will end up using up too many resources? And will we face issues of mass starvation and overcrowding as a result of having too many human beings? And are there measures that we need to apply? Are there 
top-down restrictions and control? Do we need to control the growth of population? Is this an emergency? Should this be a part of public policy? Should we see more in the presidential debates talking about the problem of overpopulation? And I would like to say that this particular topic was not something that I originally planned to talk about at Truthspresso. I did not have notes that I had crafted weeks ago to prepare for recording this episode. It actually came about because my wife showed me something on Facebook. What she showed me on Facebook was a photograph of a billboard. And this billboard showed a picture of a baby, and it had the caption underneath it, quote, The most loving gift you can give your first child is to not have another, unquote. Now, I would like to be a little critical of that quote, other than just to say that it's split an infinitive. <laughs> you know, if you're, a, if you're a grammar Nazi, you might have noticed something like that. To not have, the word not splits the infinitive to have, but I digress from being a grammar Nazi and let's focus on the message that is being portrayed in this particular billboard. This billboard is claiming that a child wants to be an only child, that the best gift that you can give to any child that you have is to make that child not have any siblings to play with. Now, there's my grammatical error that Winston Churchill would not be proud of. <laughs> there I go again, ending a sentence with a preposition. But I don't want to divert the topic to being grammar Nazis. I want to focus on content here. So, of this billboard that was urging families to control population growth by voluntarily having either no children or one child, this was put up by a group that hosts a website called One Planet, One Child. And this website is definitely promoting the idea of overpopulation, that we are in a crisis of potentially destroying planet Earth because we have too many humans. And the best thing we could do to resolve that, at least at first voluntarily, and that's what this campaign is about, is to limit families only to one child. So two parents, well, at least that's the ideal, right? Two parents and one child. And so every child is supposedly gifted. It is the best gift, according to this, that no child has a playmate in the role of another sibling. That you rob a child of being blessed financially or resourcefully if you take what you would have given to that child, hypothetically, and you give some of that to another child. So, the best gift you can give to a child is not to have that child competing for love and food and resources from parents. But on a macro scale, the idea here is to encourage parents to see the benefits to their children. This is appealing to their emotions as parents. 
that what their child needs is to be the only one and therefore the sole object of both of their love and care. And this is how we can make overpopulation into a positive thing. I mean, the solution thereof, not to freak people out about the world being overpopulation and talk about impending doom as we have seen in decades past, but to spin it into more of a positive thing. Think of the positives of having one child. It's much less strain on you as far as parenting work is concerned. It requires much less work to earn to provide for more than one child. And from the child's perspective, there is less competition between that child and potential siblings. And that child gets all of the love that you can offer. Your love is not allegedly divided between that one child and other children. And so this is what this billboard is claiming. This is a good thing. And if you think of the children first, you know, think of the lesser children first, then you can actually be doing the planet a good service. And it's a win-win because right now, lots of people like not having to care for all these children. It's, a, it's so much work and it cramps your lifestyle and, and you're, you're doing a moral service in the process. You're loving your one child by having an easier life for yourself. And so let's look at this issue of overpopulation. Let's look at the past, the predictions, and see if they have borne out or possibly will bear out. Is the earth being overpopulated? And is there a problem in the not-too-distant future that we have to worry about? Are we humans breeding and producing too quickly and too many? And is that going to cause problems for the too many? Because we all recognize that the universe is finite and the earth is finite. There's only so much landmass, there's only so much water, there's only so much fossil fuels, and every economist knows that we live on a planet of finite resources. But if the human growth around the planet could exhaust these resources more quickly, could we, in our speedy reproduction, be setting ourselves up for mass starvation, mass resource constraint? Are we killing our descendants by potentially turning the world into one massive, large, third-world country with billions of people who are going to starve themselves to death. And if you are one of these people in higher academia who have these theories of overpopulation, you most likely live in a large city. And as you walk down a large city, you see lots of people with very little elbow room and all you see is industry and people everywhere, and buses, and cars, and people riding on bikes, and people bumping into each other as 
As we think of cities like New York City, well, now in the age of COVID-19, you don't see that as much, but still, back in the 1960s, you're going to look at that, and with 1960s technology, you are going to worry about resources being used up and too many people with not enough resources leading to future and very soon very imminent mass starvation. And so you might think like Yosemite Sam, who would say, this town ain't big enough for the both of us. (laughs) Okay, so let's go back. Where did this idea of overpopulation being a huge problem originate? Well, there have been several people in the past, even hundreds of years ago, who thought this way. And we might think hundreds of years ago, the human population of the earth was but a tiny fraction of what it is today. And at that time, they were worried about overpopulation. Where did they live that they would think such a thing? I mean, they didn't walk around Tokyo or New York City or Los Angeles. And if they saw what we see today, their predictions would have been even more dire. Now, there have been people before this one particular person that I would like to bring up, but let's look at a man by the name of Thomas Malthus. Now, Thomas Malthus might be a name that you might recognize if you've heard of the term Malthusian. Now, Thomas Malthus was an English political economist, naturally, And in 1798, Thomas Malthus wrote an essay on the principle of population. And so Thomas Malthus, even back in the late 1700s, saw what he thought was a population explosion, but not like we saw in the 20th century. But what he saw was a population that was growing too fast for the resources that he observed to be able to handle all those people. So Thomas Malthus came up with this theory of population growth relative to food production to sustain the population. He theorized that population grows in a geometric progression or logarithmically upward. Now think of a curve, like if you've ever seen those charts about population growth, you see how it starts off kind of flat at the base, at the bottom, and then it starts to curve up, and then it looks like the line is kind of hugging the right side of the graph rather than the bottom of the graph. It's a curve from bottom all the way to right top. And so Malthus saw population growing in what he called a geometric progression. So think of a curve that goes up faster as it goes forward. And he saw that food production grows in an arithmetic progression. So basically population growth kind of multiplies, but food production kind of grows by addition. And so, population growth curves upward to the right, but food production is more of a line that just steadily climbs up to the right as it climbs up higher. 
So food production's more of a line going up. Population growth is more of a logarithmic curve going up. And at some point, the population would be too large compared to the food supply and that many of the poorest in the world would starve to death because they wouldn't be able to access enough of the total supply of food to be able to starve. So at some point, population growth curves up and intersects with the food supply growth from farming and then eventually goes up higher and beyond that. And at that point, there would be too many people relative to the food needed to feed them. And then there would be starvation on a massive scale. And so this natural catastrophe would bring the population down to sustainable levels again. So it's almost like this stoic cycle. People need to produce children to work so that they can continue to produce. And then eventually the population growth goes up faster than food growth and exceeds it. And then after that peak, people starve and then die off. And so the population plummets down below the food production line and so on and so forth. So to Thomas Malthus, the solution was simple. Engineer society to lower the birth rate so that population growth would be sustainable without it having to happen from mass starvation and suffering. So, this theory today is commonly called the Malthusian growth model or the Malthusian theory of population or, pejoratively speaking, the Malthusian population trap. And so, Malthus proposes voluntary solutions to what otherwise could end up being an involuntary and very painful and negative experience, a catastrophe. And so, Thomas Malthus, you are the hero of the world, right? Except that his calculations and predictions never came to pass. The population of the world has grown by leaps and bounds. The population has grown since Thomas Malthus, as we know, in the 20th century, without that kind of starvation that Malthus predicted. And so now, as we leave Thomas Malthus from the late 1700s, We go to the 20th century and we see other population growth alarmists. In particular, I would like to look at one by the name of Paul Ehrlich. Now, you might have heard the name Paul Ehrlich. Paul Ehrlich was a biologist who, as a child, as a young adult, and even for his doctoral dissertation, had a fascination for butterflies. And I really wish that he would have stuck to that fascination with butterflies and not gone into the propaganda of overpopulation. Because as we will see, Paul Ehrlich was almost single-handedly responsible for tremendous suffering in the world due to the popularity of his ideas. So, in 1968, Paul Ehrlich wrote a best-selling book by the name of The Population Bomb. 
Now, what did the population bomb claim? Well, it basically predicted that there would be mass starvation in a very short period of time from when that book was written, unless the world embraced some very important and very quick and very stringent policies to put a cap on population growth. And so, let's look at this book, The Population Bomb, and some of the predictions that Dr. Paul Ehrlich promoted early on and see if they actually came true. So, early editions of Paul Ehrlich's book, The Population Bomb, began with these words, quote, The battle to feed all of humanity is over. In the 1970s, hundreds of millions of people will starve to death in spite of any crash programs embarked upon now, unquote. So, what Paul Ehrlich was saying in 1968 is that even if we try to drop everything and embrace policies to curb population growth to some extent— the battle is over and there's no going back. There's no way to remedy it completely. So basically he was saying that there is no way at this point, as you are reading my words, to prevent the starvation of millions of people due to overpopulation. But unless we act now, that will be a lot, lot worse And so naturally, if a book like this is going to become popular, the alarmist tone in the book is going to aid in that. So Dr. Paul Ehrlich became a frequent guest on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. He was a guest on that program over and over again to keep on warning the United States and the inhabitants of Earth of this impending doom. Not something a hundred years from now. No, as we look at Paul Ehrlich's predictions, we will see that he was very certain that there were going to be incredibly bad things that were going to happen to lots of people in a matter of decades or less. In the population bomb, Ehrlich proposed various forms of coercion, as he said, The most mild being adding things to water temporarily that would sterilize human fertility. In other words, drug people into not being able to have as many children, possibly without their realizing it. And that was one of his mild proposals. Another proposal by Ehrlich was to reform tax policy to stop rewarding people from having children, but rather to punish them, to punish parents for having more than two children. Now, remember that quote from the population bomb. It said, in the 1970s, hundreds of millions of people will starve to death. And that would be in spite of any urgent programs to try to curb population growth. A lot of destruction is going to happen. It's imminent. But unless we act now, it's going to be a lot worse. But no matter what we do, we still won't prevent a lot of death and starvation that cannot be prevented. But... 
As time went on, later editions of the population bomb changed the 1970s to the 1970s and 1980s. You know, as time goes on, you kind of have to readjust your propaganda to face the music of what has already transpired. And as the 1970s were going on, he realized he needed to shift his window into maybe the late 1970s and then the 1980s to kind of save face a little bit in his predictions there. So, if you're checking your watch for the time, you realize that the millions of people that Paul Ehrlich predicted would die in the 1970s didn't happen. Sure, there was lots of death because people die of old age and so on. Sure, people died of starvation, but not because of overpopulation. It was really no different from earlier years. There wasn't any noticeable peak. In fact, as we see the records for population growth and poverty rates, we would realize that fewer people were starving in the 1970s and the 1980s, much to the chagrin of Paul Ehrlich's predictions. So why did Paul Ehrlich think that there would be these population problems. What did he see? Well, he recounts that he had a cab ride while he was visiting the city of Delhi, India in 1966. And as he was driving in his cab, he looked out the window and noticed that there were lots of people living hand to mouth. There were lots of poor people, and they would stick their hands into the cab, hoping to get fed, hoping that this person from the United States was wealthy enough to feed them. He saw this show of poverty in Delhi, India, as evidence of overcrowding, causing starvation. Well, at the time, the city of Delhi had about 2.8 million people. Now, what if he went to Paris, which at the time had about 8 million people? Paris was considered very sophisticated, very elegant. People were not starving like they were in India, even though they had more than twice the population of Delhi, India. So what was the difference there? Was the problem in Delhi, India, overpopulation? Or was it a problem of the structure of society, the customs at the time, and the way the government would control people and make it so that they did have to live that way? The difference between Delhi, India, and a more populated city of Paris, even in 1966, was cultural and the type of government. Not overcrowding. Not overpopulation. So, given the runaway success of Paul Ehrlich's alarmist book, The Population Bomb, originally written in 1968, he had free reign in the media to keep proposing his ideas. So, in 1970, on the very first Earth Day... 
Paul Ehrlich said, quote, In ten years, all important animal life in the sea will be extinct. Large areas of coastline will have to be evacuated because of the stench of dead fish. Unquote. Check your watches, friends. Did that ever happen? Hmm. Nope. Another prediction. By 1985, enough millions will have died to reduce the Earth's population to some acceptable level, like 1.5 billion people. Unquote. Did that happen by 1985? Let's check our watches, friends. Uh, no. The population grew substantially, but things got better, not worse. In an article entitled Eco-Catastrophe, Ehrlich also repeated a theory that life expectancy would average around 42 years of age by 1980. Check your watches, friends. Check the time on it. (laughs) Did that happen? Hardly. Paul Ehrlich told CBS News in 1979, quote, Sometime in the next 15 years, the end will come. And by the end, I mean an utter breakdown of the capacity of the planet to support humanity, unquote. So, what's 15 years from 1979? That would be 1994. And he said, in the next 15 years, the end will come. And so, do you remember all those movies predicting the end of the world by 2012? That didn't happen. But Paul Ehrlich's Apocalypse for Humanity was 1994 or before that. Check your watches, friends. Did that happen? Hmm, we're still breathing, still eating, and even though we're being subjugated and forced to wear masks as of the recording of this episode in some places, uh, no, that didn't happen. Paul Ehrlich believed that England would be gone by the year 2000. Uh, He said in 1971, quote, If I were a gambler, I would take even money that England will not exist in the year 2000, unquote. Well, we know that there was a lot of hype in the year 2000, you know, the Y2K bug and people were buying canned goods and rice and building a bunker for the technological apocalypse because of a programming glitch. But England is still around, if we check our watches and see. (laughs) Now, Paul Ehrlich was popular in the 1960s and 70s, and people listened intently to his every word because he was the biologist and he wrote the book, predicting imminent apocalypse and mass starvation and you know you can never be too careful and so we better take the advice of this biologist and so pretty much single-handedly paul ehrlich affected a lot of national or even worldwide policy international policy early campaigns for abortion rights were fueled from the need for population control unfortunately 
and arguably even China's one-child policy that began in 1979 largely came about because of Ehrlich and company predicting overpopulation. And China's one-child policy has hindered freedom and economic growth in that communist country and arguably has fueled lots of depression and suicide in women as they've faced these draconian measures, all because of the ideas that didn't really come about. If we check our watches, we see that these predictions never came about. But let me introduce you to the hero of the plot. There was a certain professor of business at the University of Maryland who was also a senior fellow at the Cato Institute by the name of Julian Simon. And while Paul Ehrlich was giving his predictions of gloom and doom, as population alarmists looked at people, as more mouths to feed. Julian Simon saw more people arriving on the planet as more brains to create and more hands and feet to produce things that help us all. In 1981, in response to Paul Ehrlich's doom and gloomism, Simon wrote a book called The Greatest Resource, in which he argued that human ingenuity takes scarce resources, such as minerals and metals, and continually makes them more efficient and finds newer and better ones. So why do I consider this Julian Simon the hero of the plot? Well, as Paul Ehrlich had his alarmist popularity, Julian Simon did not agree with Ehrlich's alarmism, and he challenged Ehrlich to a bet. Julian Simon bet Paul Ehrlich that non-government-controlled raw natural capital resources would become cheaper over time. And Paul Ehrlich, who was firmly brainwashed by his own ideas, was quick to take on that bet. I mean, come on, if you have lots of people crowding out the earth fighting for scarce resources... Of course, the cost of anything meaningful was going to increase as the demand would not be able to keep up with the supply. But Julian Simon believed that people were not just mouths to feed. Their brains, the greatest resource that humans had, would be able to take resources and constantly innovate to be able to make more efficient use of resources or also find other resources to replace less efficient resources so that they could produce more with less effort. And so, Simon believed that metals and minerals, capital resources that were allowed to run as the free market would make them, would become cheaper over time. And Paul Ehrlich strongly believed that they would become more expensive over time. And so, Simon and Ehrlich agreed to this bet, this wager, And Simon even allowed Ehrlich to pick any resources he wanted. They made a bet on five resources. Ehrlich and his companions deliberated, and they chose nickel, copper, chromium, 
tin and tungsten. Now they're trying to figure out things that would have the greatest chance of increasing inflation-adjusted prices over time. And they also agreed that the time frame would be one decade. So they made this bet in 1980, and so the resolution of this bet would be in the year 1990. Now, just to point out a fact, the decade of the 1980s had the fastest population growth ever recorded in history. And so, if anything, Ehrlich, if his ideas were correct, he would have won by leaps and bounds. But to Ehrlich's chagrin, he lost the bet. Did he lose three out of five? No, to Ehrlich's chagrin, all five of these resources were cheaper in 1990. And so Ehrlich found himself having to mail a check for the amount of the calculated bet according to the investment of these resources and the difference that they changed. And now we shift to the year 2020. And as we look back, even at the last two decades, if the 21st century has Paul Ehrlich, doomsday prophet of the overpopulation apocalypse, admitted that he was wrong? Uh, no, of course not. He really diminished that his prophecies were warnings and not really falsehoods. But as we saw, He made some very stark predictions. He used numbers, millions. Remember 1994 when humanity was about to be destroyed? As we check our watches, we see that not a single one of Paul Ehrlich's many predictions came to pass. And population growth continued. Because about the time that Paul Ehrlich wrote his book in 1968, population was about 4 billion people. And now, in 2020, the population is about 7.7 billion, approaching 8 billion, nearly double from when he predicted his apocalypse. Almost double the population! And everything has technically gotten better and more efficient. People aren't starving. Third world countries are being able to feed more of their poor now than they have ever been able to feed in history. Back in the time of Thomas Malthus and his doomsday predictions, the world poverty rate was about 90%. About 90% of the world was living in poverty. But now, just a few years ago, within the last few years, for the first time, poverty is now below 10% of world population. With that massive growth in human population, and yet incredible standards of living, the doomsday sayers got it wrong. It is almost as if God created human beings in his image and he put them on the earth and designed them to use the earth 
and to take care of the earth, but not to worry about destroying themselves by their own reproduction. What does the Bible have to say about fears of population, growth, and overpopulation? In the creation account, in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28, it says, And God blessed them, Adam and Eve. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish or fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And then after the flood in Genesis 9 verse 1, And God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Did God ever say, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth up to this certain capacity? Then, watch out, you might fill the earth too much. No, there's nothing in the Bible that warns of overpopulation. But we do have that dominion mandate from God to be fruitful and multiply It's kind of open-ended there. There's nothing where God says, be fruitful and multiply responsibly because be careful about flooding the earth with people. No. Psalm 127 verses 3 through 5. Lo, children are an heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth, happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. So, according to the Bible, happy is the parent who has his quiver full of children. But according to the one planet, one child, happy is the parent and happy is the child if the quiver has only one arrow. If you intentionally have only one child because you have to fear the earth being overpopulated. But the Bible, the Word of God, knows nothing of this. The Bible never tells us, be fruitful and multiply, but watch out with that. But the population alarmists... The people who always have to think that there is some kind of draconian control over the population. There always has to be elites dictating downward, imposing coercively policies to the populace. When you don't have God and his word as your ultimate standard... You think that nature is fragile. You think the earth is fragile. And you don't recognize the dominion mandate that God gave the earth to humanity, whom he created in his image, to fill and to cultivate and to use. And that, yes, we are to care for the earth. But that doesn't involve draconian policies or fear-mongering about the earth being overpopulated. That doesn't involve coercive sterilization and trying to force people to have one child or no child. And unfortunately, people like Paul Ehrlich still get to speak. They still get to promote their lies, even after false prophecy after false prophecy. 
Do we have to worry about overpopulation? Well, the next episode is going to deal with trends of population growth, and we're going to see where the population could be heading. But instead of believing all the doom and gloom, instead of believing the Paul Ehrlichs of this world, I choose to believe the Word of God. And I choose to believe that God created the world, and that God created humanity, and that God wants humanity to parent children, to treat human life as valuable. And as business professor Julian Simon saw, people are not just more mouths to feed. If despotic governments would get out of the way, people are created in the image of God with brains and two hands and two feet. And God created people to improve their own lot, to grow, to populate and fill the earth, and to do so without mass starvation, if only people would follow the word of God and God's laws, then we would be better off. Population growth alarmism and failed prophecies about mass starvation need not apply. Thank you for waking up with Truth Espresso. Good morning, and God bless your day. Hey friends, Daniel Minnick here again. If you liked waking up to this episode of Truth Espresso, I would really appreciate it if you would rate it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever application you use to listen to Truth Espresso. 